0: Thanks everyone for being with us. Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm hosting today with LaDarian Gillette. We're excited to see y'all with us on this beautiful April day. Um, let's get into our uh, discussion. We have a really great group of speakers for you today. The CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all Justice centered voices in our conversations and programming. Time and time again, sports and sports based programs have shown to be central to promoting inclusion and creating opportunities for individuals as a means to establish mutual trust and create healthier communities. More than 600 million people tuned in to watch FIFA's World Cup final in 2020. This huge figure is one of the many statistics that demonstrate how sports captivates our world. Across the globe, around the globe, I should say, uh, athletic competition activates, ac- activates a collective spirit that enhances community participation among children, adolescents, and adults. In 2000, at the inaugural uh, World Sports Awards, Nelson Mandela declared, sports has the power to change the world. It's the, it has the power to, he- to unite in a way that little else does. It speaks to youth in a language they understand. Sports can create hope where once there was only despair. It is more powerful than government's breaking down racial, it is more powerful than governments at breaking down racial barriers. It laughs in the face of all types of discrimination. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to an amazing and pioneering group of women who are creating space in the sports and fitness world for social justice and social change. First, I want you to meet Dr. Akila carter Francique. Dr. Carter Francic is the Executive Director for the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change at San Jose State University. She's also an Associate Professor at San Jose Jose State University in the Department of African American Studies. Her scholarly endeavors and field of focus encompasses the intersection of sport, society, and social justice that is inclusive inclusive of issues of diversity, social movements and the dynamics of social change and development. Dr. Francique, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you.
0: Next, I want you to meet Sarah Jamison. Sarah is a movement and pain specialist, strength coach, and NLP practitioner with a trauma-informed foundation. Her work is grounded in bridging, facilitating, and supporting people moving through trauma and chronic pain. Sarah owns and operates Movolution, a Vancouver, Vancouver, Canada-based coaching and consulting company. Sarah, thanks for joining us today, welcome. Next, I want you to meet Amanda Ekaboot. Amanda is from Mesa, Arizona and was a former college basketball student athlete and went on to receive her bachelor's in exercise and wellness at Arizona State University and her master's in interdisciplinary studies at Oregon State University. She's worked in higher education, college athletics, and diversity, equity, and inclusion and is now the assistant director for huddle up at the Institute for sport and social justice amanda thanks for joining us welcome. All right, let's get right into it, so we always start by asking our speakers to tell us a little bit about where you come from what communities you call home and who you're advocating for through your work so let's hear first from amanda. Then Sarah, and then Dr. Carter Frenzik.
2: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. First off, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. I'm super excited to share this space with you all and really appreciate it. But going to your question, Ryan, so of course, you know, I advocate for all communities, but to be specific, as someone who identifies as a proud Thai Asian American woman, I advocate for people who look like me. Um, Growing up in Mesa, Arizona, as you mentioned, um, I was raised in a predominantly Hispanic community and when I started playing sports, I was around the Black and Native American community and I would always describe myself as the minority amongst other minorities, because I was always the only Asian, whether it was on a team, in a classroom, with a group of friends, and when I was younger, I would always question why am I the only one, is there something wrong with me, And at times, I would actually disassociate myself from my Asian identity. But as I've gotten older and grown wiser, um, I have fully embraced and engulfed myself to serve as a representation for Asians who don't quote-unquote fit the Asian box or the model minority, because I refuse to subject myself to how society thinks I should be, how I should talk, or how I should act, And especially as an Asian woman, I'm stereotyped to be quiet, submissive. And let me tell you, I'm neither of those, but I really just truly walk in in who I am and just trying to be my most authentic and unique self. And I really just hope that I can inspire and empower others to do the same, not not just for those who are a part of the Asian community. So that is a little bit about like my hometown and the communities that I hope to represent and, and serve.
0: I love it. Thank you again for being with us. We're excited to hear from you and learn from you today. Thanks Ryan. What about you?
2: Uh, Thank
1: you so much. Um, I'm very, very pumped to be here. Um, And I just want to say that, um, you know, with gratitude from the unceded Coast Salish lands, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Taylor's Tooth First Nations, which is so-called Vancouver, Um, I have such a privilege to be able to live in the Pacific Northwest. For me, uh, one of the the biggest advocates and communities that I'm really um, involved in right now is I am a mother to a four and a half beautiful uh, autistic toddler who was diagnosed a year and a half ago. Um, And so for me, it's been such a gift and an invitation for our family to really see the world differently through a different through a different lens. And to also advocate different, advocate differently and challenge the narratives you know around what is considered normal development, what is considered normal education, what is considered normal fitting into society because neurodiversity is a gift um and leo is part of all of our business operations and our community involvements Um, he comes out to rallies and demonstrations and events uh he is part of you know when we sit down and talk about ocean and forest conservation with one of our businesses he knows the partners that uh, we're working with he gets to pick books for our eco literacy library in our coffee shop because i am a co-owner of another business as well and So while I'm a business owner and while I'm someone who is advocating for different avenues of social justice and different movements is that um, I'm a mother, first and foremost, and I really do feel that um, being a mother and being able to to gift Leo with the values and seeing him uh, or seeing him seeing me and my husband do the work is one of the best things that we can offer this world as a gift, because the hope is he will uphold those values as he continues to grow and evolve into a full-fledged adult.
0: I love it. And thank you again for being with us, Sarah. Um, Dr. Carter-Francic, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for?
3: First and foremost, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Laverian. Thank you, the CARE Atlanta Global um, Innovation Hub for for having me here today. Oh, my gosh, communities. I've moved from state to state to state. (laughs) But I call home Topeka, Kansas. I was born and raised there, child of K-12 educators, um, and they really instilled in me the importance of advocating for others. Of uh, you know c- education communities, they were were brought to and recruited to Topeka, and I often highlight this in many of my talks. Recruited to Topeka, Kansas, in many ways to help. Um, Live out that Brown v. Board, you know, that all deliberate speed it was slow, <laughs> nevertheless. But I was raised under that auspice of understanding what was happening in that Topeka, Topeka Public Schools. So that is home for me. Um, while I moved on later in high school to Illinois and then to Houston and then to Georgia, um, Texas, you know, back and forth uh, to Texas and now in California, um, the notion of educators stayed within me um, and being part of that education community. Um, K-12 for a short while, but higher ed primarily. Um, Other communities that I call home are um, just some of the the societies I was in as a young child um, that also poured into me because I went to predominantly white schools. So Jack and Jill uh, of America was one of those organizations that I was a part of and really reaffirmed my Blackness, uh, allowed me to to thrive in a space and be okay with who I was because I had those self-doubts growing up. Um, as a child, even with with parents as strong as they were, um, other communities that I really saw as safe spaces for me were my athletic and sporting communities. Um, I started out in track and field, had the opportunity to participate in um, and be in ballet. Uh, was in martial arts volleyball but being in all of those spaces was a safe space for me and i eventually um, that became home community for me as my older brother ran track and field at the university of florida i ran again at the university of houston Um, i married into a track space (laughs) my husband ran for lsu and then later for his home country of grenada Um, and so those are those spaces and places in which I grew and began to understand the importance of equity, of diversity, of inclusion, and continue to do that no matter where I'm at. So whether it's higher ed, whether it's um, in the classroom, whether I'm going out and speaking and mentoring young folks, um, those are my communities, education, and definitely upholding and pouring into our children. Because one of the things that I have learned is that as young children, and I was one of those as well, they're going into those schools unarmed and having to deal with the challenges of race relations from adults and from other children. And so youth uh, is is that other community that I pour into to include my own two children, Alexandra who's 10 and Aiden who's seven to ensure that they know and really truly embrace who they are as African-American and Grenadian children
0: um, in this space and place. I love it. Yes. And I'm I'm excited for you to be with us and to share with us uh, many of those different perspectives that you hit on particularly this idea of the intersection between education and sports and identity, um, I think we have a rich discussion in front of us. Um, so each of you kind of set the, the foundation for my first question. And Amanda, I want to start with you, um, because in your intro, you talked a little bit about um, how sports became a way for you to interact with, to relate, to build community uh, with folks from different backgrounds and different identities. Uh, but it also has been a part of informing your own approach to social justice and activism. Uh, within your own community. Talk to us a little bit about that journey uh, and how sports has helped to shape the way that you show up in work.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely. If it wasn't for my student athlete journey, I would not be the person I am today or be exposed to the beauty of diversity, whether it's diverse people, cultures, diverse thought, all of which I have grown to have a larger appreciation for um, throughout high school and college. And as I had mentioned earlier, I was always the only Asian. And back when I did play, I never thought to use my voice um, as a platform because one, no one asked. And two, I never felt that anyone cared to listen. So looking back, there were so many times where I just wish I would have spoke up for myself or spoke up for other people. And with that observation, I've translated that into the work that I've done as a college athletics professional and to the work that I do now because um, a really big part of my why um, that I've adopted from Custia Amato, for those who don't know, is Mike Tyson's former boxing trainer. I love boxing. Um, he said to Mike Tyson, he said, I don't create, I discover and I uncover. And that's exactly what I do with my student athletes or anyone that I come across because It really is just nourishing those different parts of a student athlete that they don't necessarily get to talk about all the time because they are so consumed in their sport um, so that they can have that confidence within themselves to really put those things into action that they care about, whether it's social justice related, race, race relations or anything of that matter. But really taking the observation of who I was as a student athlete and trying to pour in just like. Um, what Sarah and Dr. Um, Francique had mentioned, just pouring into our youth because we all wish we had someone like us, I hope, um, to pour into us so that we could be more aware um, when we do go into those different areas unarmed, Um, because once you do have that person that's there for you, you do feel that support Um, and just really being able to kind of reflect that into my work that I do now, not with just student athletes, but staff and coaches too.
0: Yes, and shout out to all the boxing fans. I feel like there's not as many of us around these days as there used to be, but I'm a huge, huge boxing fan myself. Um, Sarah, I want to get your perspective here as well, because I I have in my notes an interesting story that you might be able to tell us about um, the history of running for a cause and how this uh, particular initiative or effort. Was integrated into social justice movements. so tell us a little bit about that and tell us about why you think it's so important to use sport to advocate or or to advance the issues and the matters of the day
1: of course um, you know when we think of the lineage of running for causes it really kind of came out about the late 1960s early 1970s but it wasn't really until the early 2000s where a lot of races were starting to take on um, charity partner programs Um, And it seems that everything from a 5k to, you know, a full marathon and beyond, there were uh, ways of charities getting involved so that they could increase their donorship and increase and generate new interest. Um, So it's usually beneficial for charities. Um, And so it makes sense. But when we talk about if we're going to unpack sport and social justice, We also have to kind of look at and recognize that marathons weren't open to everyone. Running wasn't open to everyone. It wasn't until 1972 that women were actually allowed to run in marathons uh, because men thought they were fragile and their uterus would fall out of their bodies, which we know to be untrue. Um, And so, you know, Catherine Switzer really uh, pioneered, um, you know, the the first social justice movement for women being integrated uh, equitably and equality from an equality perspective of men and women um, in 1967, when she when she just flew into the Boston Marathon illegally. Uh, And that is really what, you know, pioneered running for a cause in the sense of uh, looking at gender equity as just using those two terms. Um, So why is that important? Well, 60% of women run marathons. So we also know that the majority of those women are raising funds for organizations and stewarding the social justice movements. So that's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, My first opportunity to get involved with Running for Causes was in 2003 in my hometown. Um, But what I actually found was that there was one obstacle, there's one challenge. And that was i work in pain management and a trauma-informed approach and so not all of my clients um, could physically um, run or walk in these marathons there they didn't feel safe it wasn't up to their physical capacity so there were limitations and so i wanted to fill in that gap as best as i could um, with my coaching and with my experience and so in 2005 um, i created a 10-year passion project which is called run for a cause and the hope was to create these non-sanctioned events through community support um, to be able to fill in that gap a little bit more. And then over course of that, you know, 10 years, we were able to raise $2 million for diff- for 57 different organizations. So the reason why I bring that up is that it's it's not just traditional races where we can be running for causes and stewarding that social justice movement. It's also on the individual level of, of having that passion. And so if we look at why using sport for social change works it, because it moves us out of ego-driven goals and then directs our attention to a shared responsibility. And that's really what social justice is about.
0: Yeah. And thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's always, I don't know, kind of, uh, it's always a fascinating point, I'll say, when we hear about how recently some of these barriers were broken. And I hope it serves as a reminder to all of us that, you know, these aren't kind of off in the distant past. We are still kind of grappling with in dealing with many of these issues today, particularly around gender equity, around race, around ageism, around other forms of discrimination. Um, And I always feel inspired to do my part every day when I hear about how close we are to some of these um, first or some of these milestones. Um, And and I think Dr. Francis, this kind of segues nicely into uh, some of the work that you talked about in your intro that you're leading and, and where you're passionate, particularly at this intersection of diversity, equity, inclusion, and sports. Tell us a little bit about how you're seeing sports as a tool for um, racial justice, for equity for inclusion and bringing communities together around common cause.
3: Well, in, in many ways, um, you know, I, I can tell you about it, but we've seen it. So after the murder of George Floyd and the outcry from from the public in all communities, you know, well, Majority communities of color. <laughs> we have to be, be clear on that. Um, you know, we started to see sport take center stage, particularly in this confluence of COVID 19 happening. And so individuals were looking to sport entities and those athletes to be front and center and still play through pandemic. But we saw those athletes pick up that mantle and use their platform as they have done historically as they have done for the longest of time, I can, you know, we can go back to like 1860, right? Athletes and black athletes in particular have utilized their platform to promote social change. Now, whether we've heard about it or not is the question. I think the advent of technology, when we think about, um, you know, our 1968 here in San Jose, um, the efforts of Smith and Carlos under the direction of Dr. Harry Edwards and Ken Noel allowed us to see how that platform could be used for social change. Um, The efforts of Muhammad Ali, but at the same time, the efforts of Wyomia Tyus, of Wilma Rudolph, of Althea Gibson have all demonstrated to us the ways in which our platforms can be used in a range of ways. Yes, boycotts and protests, but also when we're talking about leading and organizing. And um, to, to Sarah's point, this notion of social causes utilizing that platform for that. And so I see sport again as as serving front and center and being able to sort of direct our efforts when we talk about, and I speak of it first as equity first, then diversity and inclusion. Equity in that all of us have to understand and be on the same page to understand those those representational numbers or statistics of where we are um, in our representation. The great work of Dr. Richard Lapchick at the University of Central Florida puts out this racial and gender report card annually, looking at the NFL, looking at the NBA, looking at the WNBA, college sports, and even the Associated Press, our media outlets, to be able to understand where um, men and women and people of color are represented in these spaces and places. And that's one thing that I try to bring to the fore through um, not only my own scholarship, but the work that we do at our Institute Um, with my dear colleagues, Beth Doyle and Dr. Amy August, bringing these things to the fore and the amazing interns that we have as well. And so equity is the first thing that we bring out um, to begin to understand that. And we see with even having legislation like Brown v. Board, with even having in this 50th anniversary of Title IX, there's still much to be done. We're still in our age of first in many ways. And so we have to sort of point that out and help people understand in this moment, in this pause, when they're listening, finally, to be able to make some of that headway. And then to speak to how we can begin to create um, diverse communities, being able to create spaces through hiring practices, um, through policies, uh, to be able to bring forth this such change and then ultimately create that seat of the table and embrace that full onboarding of inclusion in those spaces and places. And so those are the things that I try to share through our Sport Conversations for Change, through our our Sports Society and Social Change Conference, in particular, our Words to Action workshops that we have to share the importance of that um, and to know that there's still work to be done Um, And it's going to take everybody to be involved. So the work that Amanda's doing, the work that Sarah's doing, and many others who are in different spaces of of lawmakers, as we see the the efforts and uh, the women of the WNBA joining together in in Georgia, right, bringing those things to the fore, that equity, diversity, inclusion is something that has been around for a long time, but we still have such a way to go to make sure that we're not only changing those policies and practices, but that we're ultimately changing the culture and the way that we begin to understand equity, diversity, inclusion, and the value of all of our individuals um, to these spaces and places.
0: Yeah, and thank you for highlighting uh, some of those resources and reports. Um, If we have direct links, we'll include those in our recap uh, email. You know, that we send out every week. Um, Amanda, I want you to have an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the Institute for Sport and Social Justice, you all's mission, your work, uh, and everything you're doing to support student athletes
2: yeah for sure so the institute for sport and social justice really utilizes sports as a platform to really help organizations both college athletic departments and professional teams really address social justice issues um, but also how to go about on addressing them in a way that the community and the organization can come together Um, because usually we see that there's that discrepancy between togetherness when trying to address some of these issues you might have some people who are on the bus and some people are at the stop sign waiting and some who just don't want to get on at all. So really starting from that foundation piece. But we really work on providing a brave space for student athletes, staff and coaches to have dialogue on a topic and a range of, of different things, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, as well as gender-based violence prevention. Um, We have different sessions for each of those areas in addition to leadership. And with leadership, it is our foundation, our base on how we always go about um, when trying to communicate this with our student-athletes. Because as we know, our student-athletes are positioned in a unique way where they're campus leaders, leaders within their team, leaders within their classroom. So really trying to always circle back to that piece. Um, but really thinking about how we can provide that space for student athletes to have that platform. Um, you know, we can't solve all of the issues in one session, but we really try to provide that blueprint and that map for those student athletes to have that dialogue because the student athletes in the room, they're the ones that are going to do the work. And they have no problem telling you when work needs to be done um, and coming from coming front about that. But really providing that space. We talk about many different things from intersectionality to privilege, equity, inclusion. And just like Dr. Carter Francique mentioned, equity absolutely comes first before even touching on diversity inclusion in order for you to truly reach that DEI piece. But really thinking about the different ways of how we can, there's an impact of racism. Equality and equity, just I had mentioned, but in addition to that of DEI, you know, we know that there's so many different ranges of social justice issues, Um, one in particular we focus on is that gender based violence piece, which focuses on sexual respect. Consent. How does that show up on campus in the athletic departments and as well as like healthy versus abusive relationships. So really providing that space to have that conversation, building that community first and really thinking about how is it we can put these items into action because, you know, we can talk all day. But what are we really doing, and how are we really setting those milestones to kind of move forward, so that we can get that vehicle moving? And again, us just serving that map and and guiding the organization, but really hoping that we provide the the proper tools so that 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 vehicle that vehicle could get where it needs to go. So that's a little bit about a lot of what we do in a. Yeah short little synopsis
0: (laughs) yeah no that was that was masterful to boil it all down and we've included a link here for folks who are tuning in to learn uh, much more about the work uh, that amanda and her team are leading um sarah i want to get your voice back in here because you you got it something with the marathon and and the running example um, that i'd love for us to build on and that's the way that Uh, women athletes are using sport to advocate for and to advance gender equity. Um, We've seen tremendous leadership here in the United States from uh, WNBA players, from the uh, U.S. National Soccer Team, and many, many other uh, women athletes, again, pushing for equity, pushing particularly around issues of gender. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in that specific space and how we might all rally around uh, those who are leading on those efforts.
1: Hmm. Um, You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as a a cisgendered, able-bodied white woman, um, I, sitting with this question, sits very differently because I always have a seat at the table. Um, And I really feel like consideration one is gender equity and equality through the lens of men and women. Um, Specifically, women have always been underrepresented in sport and sport governance. Um, That's not new knowledge to the world. Um, But influence of power and privilege is a main barrier. Uh, and one of those things Amanda alluded to is, is, is gender-based violence. Um, if we look at, you know, Catherine Switzer in 1968, when she illegally ran in, in the Boston Marathon, she was accosted um, by males. She was uh, having her, her shirt and her bib ripped off of her, pushed, spat at, cursed at. Um, and this is something that, um, you know, is still is still a problem. Um, and from historically onward. Um, So the first thing in sport and beyond is really addressing um, and and identifying that addressing gender-based violence is first and foremost. Secondarily, the consideration is gender equity and quality through the lens of white feminism. Not all women are starting at the same place of accessibility in this conversation. Um, and to quote uh, Rachel Cargill, uh, if you're not fighting for black, indigenous, Asian, Muslim, Latina, trans, fat and poor women, then you fight for no women. Um, so to use running as an example, Katherine uh, Schweitzer ran the Boston Marathon 1975 and placed second. And she got two hours, 51 minutes and 37 seconds. Um, but she wasn't the only revolutionary female. Uh, Marilyn Bevins was the first black woman to run a sub three hour marathon. And in 1977, she ran the Boston Marathon, play second at two hours, uh, 51 uh, minutes and 12 seconds, 25 seconds faster than Catherine. But nobody celebrated that win. So to answer your questions, we need to celebrate athletes equitably. And for white athletes, white trainers, coaches, leaders, educators, we have to continually dismantle the colonial roots of oppression and discrimination within our own implicit biases first. Um, it's with, and within our professional designations as well because it's systemic in fitness, health, medical, sport, everything. So every decision we make um, has to move through the lens of how am I holding up oppressive systems in health, fitness, and sport? And we have to get uncomfortable with it, and we have to be humbled when we're called in. Um, And I know that that is a a a large unpacking, but those are the two considerations that I would like to put forth.
0: Yeah, very powerful uh, position, and I think applicable in our world beyond sport. I think a lot of that uh, resonates with with many of us as we navigate each of our personal and professional spaces. Um, So thank you for for your leadership and your thoughtfulness there. Um, We have some great questions coming in from our audience. So, Darren, I want to give you space to uh, to bring a few of those to the table.
4: Thanks, Ryan, and thanks to the speakers. I think this is a really cool conversation. We've only had a conversation around sports and social justice once before, and I just feel like we should have it more often because it's really cool um, and totally a different way of kind of going against or going with advocacy. So one of the questions I had that came up, and it's a personal question of mine as well that I would love for you all to highlight um, is the policy around Title IX and how Title IX, which historically Started as a as a policy around sports, became something used for sexual assault awareness and prevention on campus as well. So I think that's one really cool um, policy that came up that started in one place that ended somewhere else that really highlights how you can use sports to advocate for different issues. So would love to hear you all thoughts around that and maybe even share some other policies you've seen come out that maybe started in a sports setting and then kind of turned into something different and kind of created a new social movement. So maybe we start with Dr. Carter-Francic first and then Amanda and then Sarah. Thank you for that question and so I'll, I'll start with this.
3: No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Those 37 words are that of Title IX. And as much as we uh, associate it with sport, it's an educational piece of legislation, and it's under sort of this, this this guise of sport that we begin to sort of see and um, really sort of align its roots, but it's for all of those, then those educational institutions, when we talk about K-12 and even higher education, and we have to understand that, you know, at, at this time, 50 years later, I had the great opportunity to serve and work with Um, the Women's Sports Foundation that are putting out the 50th report, um, but to to sort of consult on those dynamics of that with some great scholars, Dr. Ellen Starowski, Dr. Courtney Flowers, um, but to speak to the fact that in a sports space, it has come somewhat of a way, but it's still in no way, I think, in, in terms of equity being there. Um, We've seen uh, increase in scholarships, increase in numbers of participation, but it's not equitable across the board, particularly when we're talking about women of color being in those spaces, particularly when we're talking about LGBTQ plus communities in those spaces, particularly um, to, to Sarah's point, when we're talking about notions of ability or disability in those respective spaces and places. And so that also then in many ways, again, we talk about sport being this microcosm of society. So when we look in the wider educational spaces, that is also reflective in those, those educational spaces. When we look at the number of women in different fields of study that representation in those different spaces and places. And so um, that's one of the things, and I'll I'll just sort of limit it to Title IX and sort of speaking to that, but we've seen other legislation such as perhaps Brown v. Board that has created more space for women of color, because again, and thank you, Amanda, for, for talking about the wonderful work of Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw on this notion of intersectionality, we have to sort of go in with that lens. And I operate in that space of understanding how Um, those political spaces or political pieces of legislation like Title IX um, are ultimately affected uh, or affecting different spaces and places from a structural standpoint, the way that we see sex and sexism operate in our spaces and places, oftentimes limiting persons and representation in that space. um, And the notion of racism coming into that space, economic issues, um, ability, again, religion, being able to have an impact but ultimately in this space of representation. And I think that's where I sort of settle on and not settle on, but really focus my scholarship on and looking at the numbers that are represented in these spaces and places. When we talk about Title IX's um, efforts to create equitable spaces, where are women and where are women of color in terms of coaching? We got Don Staley, right? (laughs) We just finished with the final four. Where are women of color in terms of leadership, such as owners, um, managers, general managers in these spaces? But at the same time, understanding that even if we go back to our young children, we talked about our, our, our babies, right? Being able to participate, being able to see themselves in these spaces begins to create pathways into them ushering into these spaces of leadership. So where are they in terms of their representation in sports? beyond when we think of women of color to historically being in track and field and basketball but where they are they represented in terms of gymnastics and tennis and golf and bobsledding <laughs> and figure skating and some of these other even recreational sporting spaces do we see our women in these spaces and places now, again, it starts in our K-12 education schools, being able to sort of create opportunities, but that protection oftentimes does not go beyond those spaces and places. So we have to work together to really understand how this legislation that is housed in this particular space can in many ways spill over into our other society and the respective organizations to be able to uplift encompass and, and really promote this notion of equity, diversity, and inclusion.
4: Dr. Carter, seek. I feel like I need to go to one of your courses, so let us know if they're open to people who don't go to that university, I'm happy to join via Zoom, you can call me in via FaceTime, I feel like you give some great lectures. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Amanda, I want to pull you back in though. Yeah,
2: I feel like I don't need to be pulled in. I feel like Dr. Carter-Francic hit the nail on the head on, on a lot of those things. Um, I think just one comment that I have in terms of, of Title IX is is the intentionality behind it. Yes, we have this great policy in place, but where are those discrepancies, just like she had mentioned on, you know, where are those representations, especially if we're looking at trying to even out sports. We have rowing trying to balance football. What is the the population that usually is represented within rowing, predominantly white and female as we can see but really thinking about about those pieces but also not having it be a check the box. Um, Sometimes with Title nine you know there's like all right we need a, a training on sexual respect got it we got the training boom it's done. But really thinking about what are those resources and those protocols in place and is there someone that is present is it is it a part of someone's designation or title. Or is there a specific person? Is it on campus? Is it only in the athletic department? So really just trying to be mindful of of those different things, but really love how Title IX has really provided that access and that representation from an equity standpoint from resources to education, to those different sports um, to have that balance. Because if not, then we would have a very large male represented population on on athletic departments. But that's just my uh, comment in terms of, of Title IX.
1: Um, so I will be very honest. As a Canadian, I'm not that familiar with Title IX. Um, but what I will say is some of the work in Canada that is being done, um, I am involved in an organization called Pain BC, And so it's nationally recognized for how we uh, treat, diagnose, uh, and support people living with pain. And one of the things that has come up in the in the past few years has been looking at more of a trauma aware trauma sensitive approach which all humans can be involved in essentially looking at someone's lived experience generational trauma and um, you know what they what they're coming to when we're talking about pain management and healing and recovery. And part of that has been looking at um, uh, more culturally aware and culturally competent um, uh, programming. So specifically for medical, uh, fitness, health. And, you know, one of the things with uh, with pain that I found so fascinating is that, you know, we uh, work a lot with Indigenous populations. And so some Indigenous populations, First Nations and Canada, don't have a word for pain. And they approach obviously healing very differently than the Western European medical approach. And so I think the more that we have conversations about sport, the more we have conversations about social justice um, and just human to human contact is doing it through a trauma aware, trauma sensitive lens that everyone is coming with a lived experience and that we need to acknowledge that and address the, and fill in the
4: gaps. Thank you for that, Sarah. And thank you for highlighting not only kind of sports, but um, making sure we understand like kind of mental health awareness and pain management. I think all of that kind of plays a role into all of this and just being able to have that conversation, I think is important. So we had a really good question coming from an audience member from Allison that I think I had as well. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people had the same question, but I think we've seen a lot of statements come out from athletes at all different levels, right? In all different sports in um, football and track and field and, and basketball, right? But we don't see a lot of statements being made from like leagues or athletic conferences. Um, how can fans and athletes and just consumers in general really push some of these larger systems to get more involved, right? And not necessarily just allow Um, the quarterback to speak on an issue, right? Um, Or I'm not a sports person, I'm going to admit, I don't know a lot of the sports roles. I know quarterback, that's about it. Point guard, there we go. There's another one. But not really leaning on them to do a lot of the speaking, but really having the NFL and the NBA, right, come to the table and really try to help make some some movements really happen and really push them. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, Maybe let's start with Sarah, and then we'll go to Dr. Carter Francique, and then hear from Amanda last.
1: Um, so one of the things that that um, I've started to do is look at it from the standpoint of governing bodies. So I'm a big fan of emailing, connecting, um, trying to get a foot in the door um, to discuss why there is not more um, diversity equity inclusion, even from the ground of being uh, certified through NASAM, ACE, any of these NSCA large governing bodies that are essentially going to be the first starting point for a trainer to move to a coach to maybe move up in the in the ranks to whatever they want to do professionally. Um, so I think you know my experience is much more um, you know just as as a, a trainer wanting to see um, the dismantling of our industry, which is very much tossed at you know white dominant toxic. Um, And for me that's really the starting point is governing bodies and then also other education that's outside of that as well.
3: Thank you. Um, You know, great question. And I I appreciate again, everybody sort of works at different levels those governing bodies definitely need to be attacked. I think my my husband just finished his master's and uh, as, a, as a former Olympian himself was talking about the role of the International Olympic Committee and the National Olympic Committees being able to address these things when it talks about sort of race relations, if you will, and the statements that they put out um, uh, with regards statements and policies with regards to sort of sport ethics. Those are things that, that need to be looked at. It's a complex issue and needs to be attacked from from all angles, using all personnel. And I I wanna sort of start with just the notion of, when we talk about advocacy and activism, yes, we talk about from, from DEI, but to think from a broader standpoint of civic engagement, each and every one of us has a voice, has an opportunity to weigh in. And I've sort of broached this even through my own teachings and teaching in my class um, at San Jose State in our Department of African American Studies. Uh, I created a course called Race, Sport, Activism, and Social Movements. And in this particular course, yes, it's part of our our African American Studies curriculum, but it's a part of our greater general education curriculum under what's called Area F for Ethnic Studies, which is something that we're pushing out here in California for our K-12 schools, as well as our colleges and universities. But in this course, one of the things I bring forth is a notion of social action. So we're using the musings of sport, of African-American athletes, um, coaches, administrators, and their historical efforts to help our young people understand how they can leverage those various platforms to promote social change. And so they have various projects that they're speaking to, whether it be trans rights, whether it be um, trauma, mental health trauma from Black athletes that have seen police brutality and police violence in their communities, whether it be Title IX, which is one of the other issues that the students have brought forth, or even the recruitment and retention of Black athletes. So what I help them understand is that I'm going to give you the tools and resources if we can use the musings of um, the the work of of Dr. Harry Edwards and Ken Noel when we talk about the Olympic Committee for Human Rights, pushing forth that project, Olympic Project for Human Rights, but also to use the musings of social action initiatives and what we've seen in some of our greater civil rights efforts in the U.S. um, to be able to move things forward. My goal, again, as I tell them, is not to create advocacy or or activists in this space, but to give them the tools and the resources to know how to organize, to know how to communicate, talk with those social networks, talk with the media entities, work with individuals that are educators, that are policymakers, that are community organizers, and bring everybody together. Filmmakers, I have one student (laughs) that's doing a lot of that to be able to push these initiatives forward and again lend their voice when it comes to this notion of civic engagement. So whether it be in my class that they're learning and musings and taking these projects further, or as they get in their respective fields of social work, of engineering, of, um, uh, you know, in, in the medical field as well that they have the steps and the know-how to begin to do this because they never know when some sort of issue is going to hit upon them. So this is the same advice I would give to those that are wanting to get involved, that are fans, that are athletes, that are administrators in those sporting spaces to understand what can I do. You can use your respective platform to begin to advocate for change in spaces and places that you're comfortable. So it may be educating others, it may be writing letters and maybe using your social media platform to push things forward and maybe to mentor others but there's many ways to get involved and many ways to be able to engage in holding um, organizations and associations accountable for those statements of solidarity that they put out a couple of years ago
4: Exiled area on Thanks, Dr. Carter Ferency. <laughs> um, Amanda, yeah, pulling you back in for the last word.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I could speak on from a, a student athlete standpoint and just working in college athletics. It's it's not easy trying to push and evolve systems that are in place that are not meant to evolve at all. Um, so really thinking about, you know, who are the ones, who is the president at the campus, who is the athletic director in that athletic department? How bought in are they into diverse equity inclusion, gender-based violence, social justice issues? Are they really even wanting to put a statement out? I've seen conferences you know, put out statements, but then we go into, again, that intentionality of, of checking the box. Are we just throwing out a statement out there because everyone else is doing it? Is it optical allyship, especially from a social media standpoint? But when it comes to that, in addition to civic engagement, I would also add like alumni relations. Um, really thinking about those who have left the athletic department or that institution that can come back and really pour into that athletic department and that um, campus to get that statement out but more so be intentional on how are we providing for the student athletes how are we supporting those student athletes in those spaces, um, in places that I like that has been mentioned several times but really thinking on, um, you know, again, providing those resources but it really does start from the top, um, not just from the down to the top because the work is really the decision makers. And if we're thinking about even from professional leagues and organizations, it's not the quarterback that's making decisions, it's the general managers, it's you know the CEOs, whoever else within that organization. So really thinking about those who are at the table with that person to make sure that they are bought in and brought to the table to talk about those things. Um, so really thinking about who is there to, to challenge and question that person that if there isn't any statement or if there isn't any work or action happening from that standpoint how is it that we can get that that ball rolling so those are some things from from a college athletic standpoint but also thinking about just structurally from the top
4: appreciate that thank you amanda and sarah and dr carter for and i think you all gave Um, A lot of the audience members, some different things that they can do. I haven't written a letter to somebody in a long time, but I feel like it's time to start writing letters again. Right. There's so many different ways that you can really get involved um, from your own personal level. So appreciate you all for sharing some thoughts there. I'm going to pass it over back to Ryan. We have a couple minutes left and there's one more question for you all.
0: Yes. Thank you, Ladarian. And thank you again to our speakers. Um, We're nearing the end of our time together, unfortunately. um, but. I'll speak for everyone. I've learned a ton today. And we really appreciate all the information and the experience that y'all have shared with us. Um, As we close out today, uh, we always ask our speakers to tell us one thing that you're doing to create joy in the world around you, or something that's bringing you tremendous joy these days. Uh, Let's first hear from uh, Dr. Carter Francique, then Sarah, and we'll get our last word today from Amanda.
3: What am I doing to bring me joy um because of the work that I do, which I love and enjoy it's it's spending time with my family, um, you know, and just really snuggling with my kiddos <laughs> um, has been the greatest, uh, but we are a museum family we love going to museums, and of course I use those spaces and places to teach them and engage um into some some learnings um to help them have that armor when they go into the classroom but we use it as as fun places as well to begin to learn and grow and teach them how to 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 gain knowledge so aquariums we went to the aquarium this weekend monterey bay saw some fish and otters and and seals so that was always fun during the pandemic we started gardening um and in many ways i'm gonna let you know uh disney plus saved my life uh (laughs) so started watching a lot of those Marvel shows um, and and getting into that. But again, we're a track and field family. So we go to track meets, we watch track meets, um, we participate in track meets. uh, And and then lastly, I will say is travel. Um, That has been something that we're kind of getting back on board and doing. So whether it be locally, um, whether it be internationally, it's just an opportunity to to get back and connect with family, um, connect with friends, um, enjoy some great food. Uh, and so those are the things that bring me joy, food, uh, <laughs> food, family, um, and and just uh, being able to be, you know, being able to be where
0: I'm at. I love that. Uh, I, I can identify with all those, especially the food and family. Those are personal favorites for me. Uh, what about you, Sarah? What's bringing you joy these days or what are you doing to create joy?
1: Uh, Something that uh, I'm doing right now is my son and I are, uh, well, me personally, but my son is learning is we're in this six month uh, seed to harvest indigenous led uh, gardening course for uh, understanding how to forage ethically and we're making um, like traditional teas, things like these. And what's really amazing is that we're also growing jack-o'-lantern. We're growing our first pumpkin. And so my son is very excited. He goes out and he says hello to his pumpkin every morning. He waters it. He knows how to put the seeds in. Uh, And it's just for me, my mom loved to garden and she passed in 2008. So I feel like there's a generational lineage there that uh, is just really special and sacred to our family.
4: So
0: Excellent. Uh, Yeah, that resonates with me as well. Sorry. Uh, But I I used to plant a garden with my great grandmother. Um, And we would always plant every year on Good Friday. My mom still keeps a garden at the house. And like that, I can't, I don't have any kids of my own yet, but I absolutely can't wait to pass that uh, practice and that habit along. Um, So you you just made me think of that. That's a really cool one. Uh, Amanda, over to you. Last word from you. What's, what's bringing you joy? What are you doing to create joy in the world?
2: Yeah, retweet everything, food, family, fellowship. um, I think the whole nine, I think that's about it. Um, But no, so I mean, traveling as well. I just got back from Mexico. So throw me on a beach with some good food and a margarita. And I'm just happy. I'm very joyful. But in all seriousness, um, something that I took on uh, recently was Thai dancing. So with my Thai culture, to be um, transparent, I'm not bilingual. My mother actually didn't want to was worried about me learning English um, and because she was ridiculed for her quote-unquote broken English um, and was so worried about me learning English. So I don't know Thai, but I have really made it intentional to be engulfed in my culture in different aspects, whether it's cooking Thai food, my mom cooks, um, eating Thai food too, but Thai boxing, Thai dancing, and that was something that I did recently. I had my first performance and it was just, it's very um, fulfilling to just Still be so proud of your culture, although you felt that there was a part of it missing since you've been growing up. So that has been been really joyful for me. But again, family, food, boxing, Thai boxing, all that good stuff um, is is what's been bringing me joy. And I think, you know, just being appreciative of our health during this time um, with how things are going on in this world. There's so much going on in this world. So just appreciating the the things that we take for granted sometimes um, and really enjoying it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's the perfect word to, to end on and appreciation for health and the fact that we get to be um, during this time. For those who are on the line and willing and able, turn on your camera, turn on your mic. Join me in giving a round of applause and appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you for this great conversation. That's that. With that said, we've got just a few more minutes left. We'll leave the chat open if folks want to stick around for a bit. DJ Sofa, do your thing. Take us out.